Hi, this is Patty Lapone. This is Allison Janney. This is Matt Balmer. This is Donna Murphy. This is Nia Vardalis. This is Jesse Tyler Ferguson. This is Beanie Feldstein. I'm Octavia Spencer. This is Ben Platt, and you're listening to Little Known Facts with my favorite person on the planet, Alana Levine. A-OK. Welcome to Little Known Facts, a podcast where you will hear unfiltered, raw, honest, and uniquely funny interviews with artists you love as they talk about the art they love to make. I'm your host, Ilana Levine. Hey, I heard you need an inspiration. He's Ilana and friends with some revelations. Little known back to the day, every little thing's gonna be A-OK. Little known fact, in the summer of 2022, I had the privilege of hosting a live event at Bryant Park in New York City. The panelists were incredible authors who were all there because they had written a novel in the suspense genre. So with me that day were Kate Hallahan, author of The Darkness of Others, Kathleen Marple Kalb, author of A Fatal Overture, Casey Sherman, who penned Helltown, the untold story of a serial killer on Cape Cod, and Nico Wolf, who wrote Birthday Girl. I have to take a moment to apologize to Nico because in the live event, when I listened back to our recording, I called her book Broadway Girl because... Well, that's what I am at heart, a Broadway girl. So Nico's book is in fact called Birthday Girl. And thank you to all these panelists. And without further ado, here is the suspense thriller panel of extraordinary authors. Enjoy. A-OK. A-OK. Hi, everyone. I want to really say a huge thank you to Susie Siegel for curating this incredible event today. I can't think of a better place to celebrate literature than when these, uh, with these astounding authors that are gathered here today. So welcome to our live audience. Welcome to this distinguished panel of incredible, talented uh, and authors that inspired me. I read all your books. I loved each of them so much. Um, Brian Park has become a bit of a cultural mecca for all of us, and I'm so grateful to this park uh, for hosting these events. It's been a privilege. So now I want to introduce this incredible panel of authors to you, starting with um, the author of Helltown, Casey Sherman. Thank you. I, uh, I'm thrilled that Kathleen Marple Kalb, author of A Fatal Overture, is here. Hi there. Kate Hallahan, author of The Darkness of Others. Hi, everyone. And Nico Wolf, author of Broadway Girl. Welcome to you all. Um, I thought it might be fun uh, to just begin with, before you guys um, do us the honor of reading a little bit of the book. So many people here today have already read your books. That's why you're here. But for the few people here who haven't yet read them or listeners at home, I feel like if you read a bit from the book, they'll get a sense of the tone and the story and and, and how you um, weave your tales. But what would be really fun for starters is if each of you wouldn't mind just describing in a few words, your protagonist for us. So, Nico, maybe we'll start with you and just talk a little bit about Jonathan. Sure. Um, 
We first meet Jonathan when uh, in about 1996, and he is a fairly impoverished writer living in the East Village. And then we meet him again pretty quickly afterwards in the present day, and he has hit fame and fortune with a best-selling series of crime books. And of course, as a good New Yorker, he immediately purchased a townhouse in the West Village, and he is living the life. Um, his days are a whirl of publicity and author appearances and flying to fun places and drinking very good wine. Just like yours, I assume. On Just the daily. like mine. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So do you want to read a bit? And then, and then we'll sort of do this going down the line, if that's okay with you guys to do it that way. Sure. So um, in the book, when we meet Jonathan, he is going out to the beach with his wife. He's taking her on a trip for her birthday. And she disappears. And so we meet him 20 years later in his successful life. And he happens to be walking through Barnes & Noble. And we meet him in this extract. He's at the top of the escalator, again, in the present day. At the top of the store's escalator, he remembers he has an appointment with his trainer. Annoyingly, this means dumping his bags at home before schlepping all the way back uptown. Directly in front of him, two women stand stock still and side by side, chatting animatedly. He finds himself thinking of a comment of Maddie's that Americans don't know how to use escalators. He lets out a pointed little sigh, and one of the women turns to glare at him, and this he will remember afterward, is the moment when he sees her. Below him, on the main floor, among a knot of people moving toward the exit, it's like an electric shock, his body registering it almost before his mind can take it in. Maddie, it can't be. He tries to get past the women, but they won't budge. The blonde one tusks at him, actually shoves out an elbow and mutters something about what a rude man he is. Please, he begs, please, my wife, it's an emergency. In a matter of seconds, she will be through the exit and out on the street. As the women step grudgingly to one side, he sprints down the escalator, throws his bags on the floor and dashes out. Pedestrians, delivery people, hot dog sellers, frantically he runs up and down the sidewalk. At the end of the block, he races across the street, narrowly misses being hit by a cyclist and back into the green market. More crowds, people and dogs, nameless faces, strangers. For the second time in his life, his wife has vanished into thin air. All of the books on this panel deal with um, a murder of some kind, but I want to jump down to Casey because I don't know... I don't know if you would call it historical fiction, because, or, or what do you call a true crime that's happened, and then what you've done. Sure, in I think how you can you tell call that literary nonfiction. Uh, Hemingway started this uh, kind of revolution in writing with Death in the Afternoon when he wrote about bullfighting, and then in the '60s, uh, Norman Mailer and other writers began to weave fictional elements into a, a much deeper, you know, true crime story to provide the connective tissue for the readers. So I was really inspired uh, when I wrote this book and I had just written um, The Last Days of John Lennon with James Patterson. And Jim taught me a lot in terms of how to really 
carry a story. You know, my background is I'm a, I'm a journalist and a reporter. And, you know, so to, you know, kind of break the chains a little bit and get into some natural storytelling was a, a great challenge for me, and I enjoyed it. Well, it's incredible because you bring in, I mean, uh, Tony Costa is a real serial killer yep. who, who uh, was, was in Provincetown in the 60s. Correct. So, you know, I call myself the accidental author. I never believed I'd be writing books one day, but that is until I was thrust into the spotlight because of my work on one case, one of the biggest cases in the history of American crime, the case of the Boston Strangler. Now, for me, this was a personal crusade because my aunt, 19-year-old Mary Sullivan, was the youngest and final victim in that notorious 1960s murder spree. So questions about the guilt or innocence of the killer led me to journalism school, led me into a 20-year career in journalism, and kind of led me into where I am today. When I reinvestigated the Boston Strangler case, I wrote my first book about my experiences, and it was a, a memoir about how a family gets justice on its own terms. I was not willing to revisit that dark journey with a serial killer. And to your point, um, during the height of the pandemic, I just wanted to get the hell out of the house. So I picked up my brother on Cape Cod, and we drove the length of Cape Cod until we uh, entered Provincetown. And all of the stores were shuttered. It was during the height of the summer season. And we began to talk about ghost real and imagined in Provincetown. And we ended up talking about the serial murder case that occurred in the late 1960s. Now, I knew about the murder case as a kid, but in a kind of a joking folklore fashion. It was uh, told to us on Halloween before we went out. So I never really racked focus on how disturbing these murders were until I took a hard look at it. And as an investigative journalist, I've covered 50 homicides in my career. This is the worst I've ever seen. Um, what this killer did to his victims, all young women, are, are heinous, which is why I probably can't read from the book, you know, given some of the grisly details. So I just uh, talked about it a little bit, but I wanted to elevate the genre of true crime, and that's why I brought in two writers, Norman Mailer and Kurt Vonnegut, who become darkly obsessed with this murder case and how they lose themselves in many ways by focusing on the heinous murders that are depicted here in this book. And who would you say the protagonist of your book is? <laughs> They're all antagonists. That's the thing. Um, I would say, you know, this book is also a, a, a credit to law enforcement. Uh, I worked with the investigators who were still alive, who walked me through how they were able to you know, not only uh, capture the killer who sends them on a cat and mouse game uh, across four states, but ultimately make sure that no other young women are brought out to the woods and then, you know, disposed of. And that was one of the things that I was really focused on was, was how women were treated in 1969. This was a, a, a landscape on which I painted this era, which was kind of similar to where we are today. You know, it's uh, the, the summer of love is gone. You've got everybody still reeling from the RFK assassination, uh, Martin Luther King. We've got a bloody um, protest in Chicago for the DNC National Convention. We also have Chappaquiddick. We've got the moon landing. And ultimately, we have the Manson murders. And Helltown is very similar to what was happening later on in that summer in Southern California with Charlie Manson. So skipping to sort of present day, what I thought was really amazing in Kate's book, 
uh, darkness of others. A, I live in Brooklyn. Um, and so I was like, which brownstone has this happened in? Um, but it was a book written uh, during co the pandemic. And also it feels so in real time and fresh because you talk about, you know, people are wearing masks. People couldn't be evicted because of the laws that were changed during COVID between, you know, in terms of what landlords could and couldn't do. And it was really fascinating to sort of read something that was so um, present day, literally, in terms of what we collectively had been through. So if you could talk a little bit about your protagonist and then share the book with us. Sure. So Amani Banks uh, is my protagonist. She's a therapist in uh, Brooklyn Heights. And uh, she's pulled into a murder investigation because her uh, best friend's husband is shot dead and her best friend is missing and she uh, assumed on the run after killing her husband and so she really uh, this is her close friend she believes that she didn't do it and that the police aren't taking it seriously and she goes about trying to figure out what happened um, and the pandemic is a really kind of an integral part of the story we don't it's not about you know, death, and I'm writing a domestic suspense thriller. Um, so it's about death, but not pandemic death. But um, it's, I wanted to write something that I thought reflected where we were. And also, all my books are uh, contemporary fiction. They take place, with the idea that they're taking place in the now. And I don't think we really knew what the now would look like when we were in the, the middle of the worst of the pandemic. And I thought that it was maybe a little disingenuous of me to say, okay, this is gonna take place later on this year where everything went back to normal because we didn't know what normal would look like. And I also believe that um, you know, part of what we try to do in art is reflect back things that people are dealing with and, and remind people of, you know, these were the stressors and this is how it complicated human interactions and this is, um, you know, this, this was life and, and also, um, do that in a way where I'm still telling an entertaining, you know, mystery where it has a lot of plot twists and, uh, but also feels like something relatable. So, do you want to read from the book? Uh, sure. Although I'm going to start with um, just the beginning because why not? We all work on our beginning. So it doesn't start with my protagonist. It starts uh, with the person who's going to find the body. The walkers were hiding. Oksana tried not to take it personally as she hauled her vacuum down a narrow staircase to their finished basement. Clients liked to pretend she was invisible. They avoided eye contact with the jowly blonde whom no one would believe was only 40 if they'd asked, treating her like a product that disappeared toilet rings and eliminated carpet stains, rather than a person who scrubbed and wiped and hauled, who'd escaped a military invasion and mortar shells to start her own American business. Life's unfairness was less embarrassing that way, she figured. Celebrities were frequently the worst, often refusing to remain in the same room once she appeared. But the walkers had always been different, acknowledging her biweekly presence with warm smiles and casual inquiries about her health and family. Oksana knew that they didn't expect her to answer too honestly or at any length. Even so, the effort at polite conversation had been something, providing tidbits with which to regale starstruck friends or once or twice sell the gossip rags. Melissa Walker bathed skin in snail mucus. Nate Walker's new gig, stay-at-home dad. Oksana stepped off the wooden stair onto the white marble floor. She carted the unwieldy vacuum another several feet to a patchwork cowhide carpet, which was surprisingly easy to care for despite its undoubtedly exorbitant price tag. A single pass with the Dyson typically did the trick, as long as there weren't any real stains. 
The vacuum's various attachments clattered as she set it down. Oksana unwound the card, the cord, and began dragging it toward the socket tucked beneath the open staircase, wondering which floor the family was holding up on. It was a pandemic making everyone extra cautious, she told herself. If the Walkers had suspected her of leaking that headline about Mr. Walker's lack of employment, they would have fired her already. Then again, maybe not. The pandemic had made people desperate to retain their small circle of previously vetted people, even when it came, became clear those relationships weren't work, working out. Maybe she'd simply been grandfathered in. Oksana crouched to the outlet, a Merlot-colored mark shown on the tile in front of her. She dropped the vacuum cord and crawled toward it, pulling a wet white packet from her back pocket. Red wine stained everything, even seemingly hard surfaces, and the basement floor was honed, making it more porous than the shiny stone version. To prevent a permanent mark, she'd probably have needed to treat the marble yesterday. Still, maybe there was a chance. As she reached the Seine, Oksana saw that it had company. Red dots led a jagged path to the den. Somebody had gotten tipsy and then sloshed his or her way to the stairs, she decided. A damp tissue wouldn't clean this mess. She'd need a paper towel at a minimum. The mop, most likely. Oksana straightened, pressing one hand to the floor and the other to her bad knee. She followed the spots to the open den door, muttering about the importance of holding one's liquor. If there were spills on the carpet or worse, vomit, she would need to rent a steam cleaner and give them a quote. And she wouldn't be able to offer any guarantees. Red wine, puke, blood, and pet piss were the four horsemen in her business. Removing such fluids from carpet or fabric furniture was nearly impossible. As she entered the den, she immediately noticed more splashes on the suede wallpaper behind Mr. Walker's large wooden desk. A scotch glass sat on top with a ring of gold liquid in the bottom. She spied the bottle in a bin beside the door, trashed despite the liquor still inside. Scotch and wine. She cleaned up the family dishes long enough to know that Mr. Walker rarely drank alone, especially not hard liquor. He'd been entertaining. First time since the shutdown, probably. No wonder someone had gotten sloppy drunk. Oksana approached the wallpaper. The largest spot had hardened into a crust. Less like wine, more like ketchup. She scratched at it. It didn't flake off, but particles slipped beneath her nail. Oksana stepped back, considering the gunk on her finger. She heard the wet squish before registering the sensation beneath her shoes. The sides of her gray sneakers were coated in a dark, brick-colored goo. She whirled around, looking for the source of this new stain. On the floor, behind the desk, lay a near-headless body. Oksana couldn't immediately tell whether she was looking at the figure's front or back. The face was nearly gone. Brain, identifiable only by its whitish color amid all the red, had dribbled and dried over the places where the eyes and nose had been. The arms were splayed out as if the victim had fallen backward. A black handgun lay in his palm. Most people would have screamed. However, most people hadn't learned to sleep through shelling and wake at the rumble of tanks rolling past their home. They hadn't grabbed blankets off beds to cover bodies or scrub blood from cobblestone hearths. As there was nothing to save, calling the police could wait. Oksana reached for the garbage and then her phone. She withdrew her cell and clicked on the camera app. She stepped back onto what was left of director Nate Walker fit in the frame. Then she placed her finger squarely over the screen and tapped its big red dot. Our next author may sound really familiar to you because she is a person who works for 1010 Winds, which is a radio station. If you are a New Yorker, you have undoubtedly listened to news, traffic, and weather. And it is thrilling to have a 1010 Wind celebrity here with us today. So welcome, Kathleen. I'm Kathleen Marple-Kalb, and here's what's happening. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
today at Bryant Park. Um, I would love it if you, using your fabulous radio host oh, voice, um, could share with us a little bit about Ella, Great. the protagonist of your book. And you've written a series of books, actually. Yes, yes. Ella, Shane, I like to describe Ella as part Beverly Sills, part Anne of Green Gables, and part Errol Flynn, and all her own woman. She's a opera diva in 1899. Actually, by the time we get to this book, it's 1900. And she sings trouser rolls. She's come up from being a poor Irish Jewish orphan in the Lower East Side to have this very glamorous life as an opera star. And she and her cousin Tommy, who is a former boxing champion and not the marrying kind, which means exactly what you think it does. There was an out and proud in 1899, but he's as out and proud as you can be. And they share a nice little um, townhouse in Washington Square. And they solve mysteries. And she has a, well, he's a beau, I guess we could call him. This guy, the Duke, who keeps showing up and ending up in the middle of the mystery one way and another. And by the time we get to book three, they've admitted that they love each other, but there's still a lot to work out because she's not going to give up her career to marry him. And he's not really sure what he's willing to give up in order to have her. So they're, they're kind of at that point where somebody's got to give something in order to commit. And in 1899, that's a much harder discussion than it is now. It's not just where will we live and what will we do, because there's a, all these expectations about women and childbearing and what a woman is and what a woman can do. And Ella's coming into this marriage as a 34-year-old woman with her own property, her own career, and her own life. And he's a peer of the realm in Britain. So, oh yeah, and she's Jewish. Did I mention that? So uh, there's a lot going on there and there's a lot in the room. So that's where we are at the beginning of A Fatal Overture. It's taken two books to get us to this point. And in A Fatal Overture, um, Ella's, the, his, his family shows up in an attempt to settle the matter, only to find a dead body in the bathtub. And then things get really weird. And um, ultimately at the end, I, like, I have to say it this way because something, otherwise it will be a spoiler, the, movie, the theater in which Ella is performing burns down and something more terrible happens at the end which makes everybody think about where they are. So it's, it's like the big adventure that forces everybody to make up their minds. That's what this one is. And I'm going to read from the opening, which is called The Highland Ladies Step In. That's the opening chapter. And we are at Ella's house in January of 1900, and she's just what she thinks is a normal day in her house. One would think that a day that ends in a marriage proposal, never mind unexpected visitors and violent death, would begin with some hint of the drama to come. But one would be sadly wrong. That Wednesday in late January 1900 started simply enough, a charity board meeting in the morning, followed by a good vocalization session and a fencing lesson in the early afternoon, the normal stuff of my life between productions and tours, and at times between murders. I surrender, the Comte du Bois said, ending our match with a grin that made him look even more than usual like an amiable gargoyle. Well done, Mademoiselle Ella. We bowed. It was the first time I had ever defeated my fencing master. Surrender! Montezuma, my Amazon parrot, crowed from the rafters, bursting into a raucous drinking song that our sports writer friends had seen fit to teach him. I foolishly thought this was the extraordinary moment of the day. Little did I know that all matter of complications would await me before my head touched my pillow again. So all of you have sort of taken on uh, 
this mystery and suspense thriller genre with a murder at the center of your story or obviously uh, in in Casey's case, many murders at the center of the story. Um, I just want to say something that really moved me about Helltown, aside from the, the sort of fun of Kurt Vonnegut and Norman Mailer, two authors that we've all heard of. Um, you pay tremendous respect and tribute to all the women who were lost right. uh, to the hands of, of Tony Costa. So I just want to say uh, right up front that I thought that was really beautiful. Um, that you gave them voices and stories and families and really brought a reality to things that we read as headlines so often. Um, and I am sure in no small part because you just shared something really personal about how the Boston Strangler was not just a headline, but like part of your life. That's, right. That's such a rare thing. So I just wanted to start off by, by saying um, that I thought that was beautiful. All of you um, have taken on the thing that most of us are most terrified by. And I know that often writers are given this task of write the thing that scares you and then figure out a way to tell it anew. And all of you have done so with tremendous elegance. So thank you for that. I guess I want to just go down the line because so many of the people here today are, are not just lovers of, of books, but aspiring or or currently writing something this themselves so i'd love to talk about process if that's okay with all of you and maybe just starting with the simplest of questions and we can go down the line or jump in if you if you have a, an answer right away but like why this story where were you when the inspiration hit you've all written other books you all actually most of you have a journalist background as well which is interesting but like are you in the shower? Are you brushing your teeth? Are you on the beach? Like, where did the ideas come from for these books specifically? And Nico, if you want to just jump in with, like, where were you? I thought you said we could go down the line or someone could jump in. No, I'm all good. Thank you. I'm a Thank liar. You. Thank you, Alana. <laughs> and just so you all know, we, at least I did not have the questions beforehand. So I'm going to ad-lib all of, all of this. Um, so the central event in Birthday Girl is uh, the protagonist's girlfriend, wife rather, gets into a stranger's car. And that car is a vintage E-type Jaguar. And she disappears. And she's pretty much not seen for 20 more years until Jonathan imagines that he sees her walking through Barnes and Noble. And of course the book is trying to figure out for us as well as Jonathan, is he imagining it or is she in fact back? And if she is back, why? But generally when I write, I have an idea. I have the beginning, I have the end, and then I have to figure out how to fill in the middle. That was the challenge. But at the beginning, I was actually out on the North Fork. It was probably 2016, something like that. And I was with a friend, and we saw an, a vintage E-Type Jaguar, which is my favorite car, even though I can't drive. But anyway. Um, and my friend said, oh, who do you think owns it? And so we got ourselves into a nearby bar, and we watched the car through the window, and we waited for someone to come back. We waited to see who the owner was. And after about 10 minutes and a couple of whiskeys, we saw a man approach the car and so I ran outside as you do and said oh I love your car like you know 
where did you get it and how long have you had it and how did you choose the color and all of that and uh, he said oh would you like a ride and I said as you do yes I'd love one <laughs> and I got into the car and we drove off leaving my friend standing there outside the bar and um, we had a lovely drive around for half an hour. We talked about the steering, we talked about the engine. But much later that day, after I was delivered safely back to my friend and the car drove off again, I thought, yeah, you know, that worked out. I got back okay. But what if I hadn't? And that, I think, for all of you who are writers out there, that's often the central thing, right, is you, you think of your as if. Yeah, this happened to me, but what if this other thing happened instead? So that, that was my starting point. And that's how Birthday Girl was born. Um, so for me, I think I often write from a little bit of my own anxieties. Uh, this is my seventh book, so I guess I have a lot of them. <laughs> um, and I, uh, this story really came about because there were a lot of... Uh, friends unfortunately that were uh, not in the best marriages during the pandemic and the stress of being kind of in you know in the same place and not being able to, uh, to you know satisfy the other parts of yourself that maybe you get from friends or from family members or whoever, whatever it is that kind of helps you be a whole person and all of a sudden having to rely just on the people in your household and how um, that added a level of stress. And so I guess I was thinking in some of these, these uh, friends whose their marriages ended in divorce as soon as, the, as, soon as they could get out of the house, um, I thought, well, what if, um, you know, what, what if there was a murder and the assumption was that things had gotten really bad when everybody was behind closed doors and, uh, and how would that play out? And was there a moment where it went from the general to the specific? Um, well, I mean, uh, certainly whenever you're writing your characters, they, you develop them and that they become very real people, um, which is probably why writing is a little bit like schizophrenia, right? You start to hear these people in your head and then, uh, and then it's not a matter of a bad marriage. It's this particular character's bad marriage and this other character's, you know, struggling friendship and... And so that's how, that's how that goes. You also really capture the competitive world of getting your kids into school in New York City um, and also highlighting, you know, very specifically the restaurant business during COVID. A lot of businesses really struggled and a lot of people tried to figure out how to keep their employees paid during the pandemic. So there's a whole sort of side story in this book that deals with a very specific restaurant and a family and people working there and and sort of the way all of us know suddenly these tents are popping up all over city streets and you're eating outside as if you're in Aspen in winter, like under blankets, like just the way we all adapted. Right. And, and we now don't have any of those parking spots back because even though we can eat outside, inside, we still have these incredible outdoor restaurant spaces. So the specificity of that, I think, especially for New Yorkers, will really hit home. Well, I hope so. And yeah, the, that's kind of a B storyline that, that comes in. But the idea is that um, the the Amani's husband has to furlough a lot of his employees at the restaurant 
and he feels terrible about this and one woman is a single mom and he says well why don't you rent a room in our house um, and he's kind of doing it to help her and also to be honest he could use a little extra income and uh, Amani starts to realize there's connections between this woman and uh, the, the man who was shot dead and starts to wonder if she's let a murderer into her home and who she can't evict because there was a moratorium on evictions during COVID. Exactly. Yes. Okay. Um, Ella Shane is two very New York things. She's a product of my walking to work through Washington Square, which is where she lives. I walk to get to my office at 1010 Winds. I have to walk through Washington Square from da if I'm coming from here. And I wa always walk to Washington, walk down when I'm working day shift. So I would walk around Washington Square and look at the townhouses and the park and think about who might live here and what they would be like. And the other side thing about Ella is also very related to 1010 Winds. She's a woman doing, quote unquote, a man's job. She sings trouser rolls, which were originally written for castrati, which are exactly what they sound like. Um, and guys, amazingly enough, didn't want to keep doing that to, be, to have an opera career, so somebody had to sing those parts, and those went to women. Women with a lower soprano voice, like Ella, who is a, a, a what she's what's called a coloratura mezzo, a mezzo-soprano with a large, dark voice. And so she's a woman doing a man's job. In radio, there's a con there was, for many years, a convention that a woman can't open the hour. At the top of the hour, it's got to be a male voice with those big male Y chromosomes in there, baby. <laughs> and so there was, there, it, by the time I started working at Winds, it was a joke. But one of my coworkers would say to me, jokingly, if I was doing top of the hour one night, hey, you're doing the boy shift tonight. And so the idea of a woman doing a man's job stuck in my head. And when I read about opera singers who do trouser rolls and I was looking for something to do, the, somebody who would live in Washington Square, I kind of got the idea of Ella. And, and then Ella needed somebody to balance off of her. And that's her cousin, Tommy, who is her closest friend and her best, who is like the person she's closest to in the world. And the two of them were like little orphan kids who took care of each other. And well, Ella's no orphan, he's not. And they, and so there's this bond there that's very special and I'm one of those people who writes characters I'm character driven Not, nothing can happen nobody but my characters can solve this mystery and nobody but my characters could be involved in this mystery like things that Ella knows are the things that help you know she solves it because of things she knows and so that's, that's how my characters are set up and, and I just like spending time with my characters that's they're, they're real to me and it gives me an excuse to hang out with these people I really like in a place I really love. So, Well, clearly, this is your third book Yeah, this Ella. is the third Ella. Right. This is the third so Ella. you love her. Yeah, I do. Yeah. So, Casey, after, after having spent so much time on a book that dealt with, you know, serial killings, mm. what made you want to do it again? Well, imagine that Jack the Ripper was resurrected to stalk the women of Cape Cod. That wasn't some dark fantasy. That actually happened in 1968 and 1969. It was a serial murder case that was lost to history. But in my estimation, with authority, I can say the killer, the monster in this book, Helltown, is the most vicious serial killer in history. And when I started to go down that dark path 
again, obviously writing true crime, you're only as good as the source material that you can gather. So I had access to 3,000 primary source documents in this case, uh, crime scene reports, autopsy photos, crime scene photos, photos that still haunt me to this day. There were times in the process where my wife had to pull me out of writing uh, and I would have to spend a week away from this story before going back. But I wanted to write a cautionary tale because I told you that this monster existed, but he was also the most unassuming person in any room, yet he had incredible charisma. And Nico, the fact that you got into a, a Jaguar with a stranger just terrifies the hell out of me because, you know, I write true crime, this happens, and you're, you are an anomaly. You made it home safely, thank God. A lot of other people don't. And I wanted to write a cautionary tale of, you know, always be familiar with your surroundings. Never give yourself to somebody just because they're a good talker or they're witty or they're super intelligent. All the things that my killer was. But he also had mother uh, issues. He had a love-hate relationship with his mother. He was an amateur taxidermist, which unfortunately his victims found out a little too late. Uh, he's the epitome of, you know, Hitchcock's psycho. That's exactly what he was. So when you read this book and the fact that you mentioned that this book is dedicated to the, to the victims, because I wanted to really um, show the world who they were. And their only, their only crime was kindness. They, they offered a stranger a kind act, and they paid for it with their lives. Well, I also wonder if, because you described earlier Charles Manson was happening at the same time, you know, it's almost as if headlines were competing with each other. So there was this national story involving celebrities, which right. in our culture always sort of takes over and sort of made this particular story less newsworthy in a way when you had such a headline going on with Charles Manson. Oh, oh, sure. I mean, the Manson murders sucked the oxygen out of the room. Right. And still does, you know, due to this to this day, you know, most people don't know about this case. They, they're now learning about it, you know, through the book Helltown. And it's interesting that part of the process is reaching out to people that are still alive, you know, uh, from their work in 1969. And that includes people that knew the killer, uh, his friends and his family. They were uh, protecting him back in 1968 and 69. They were uh, intimidating police, intimidating witnesses. And now, 53 years later, many of them are doing the same thing. So I had an event like this scheduled in Provincetown, and it was abruptly canceled because of this online mob that was threatening the bookseller. So part of my job is you do get threatening emails, letters, and you have to take them seriously. Look what just happened to Salman Rushdie, um, you know, two weeks ago. So it is, uh, you walk that fine line when you're writing true crime. I wanted to um, uh, ask you guys in terms of, I've been really fascinated with the editor-author relationship. It's brand new to me as a non, I'm an artist, but not a writer. And and I know that in, in, in my world of theater or television, it's the director who sort of helps me take whatever my instinct or idea is about the character and then make sure that whatever I'm doing honors the writer's vision, right? It's always about serving the writer. Um, 
Do you feel like your editors uh, are always about serving you as the writer, or do you feel like they have this sort of more global marketing thing on their plate that they're also dealing with? And I'd love to hear a little bit about what your editor author relationship is like. All of you are established writers, so I, I just learned the word query in terms of how you sort of begin as a writer to get people interested in what you have to author, offer. I don't know if these are query books or you're all past sort of that moment in your careers. So actually, A, why don't you, can you describe what a query letter is or query in the world of writing? Do you all, are you all familiar with it? Even though I just learned Back it. Back in the day, sure. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yes. Yes. But I think it'll be helpful for aspiring writers to understand I'm what I'm talking about. I'm still in counseling to get the ba rid of the bad memories. Okay. Um, I, I I don't know how it, how it went for other people. Other people may well have gone had a much easier ride than I did. I have 200 rejections over three projects and over about three years. Would you say query in, is the same as in my world pitching when you're pitching yes. an idea and yes. you right. okay. yes it's your pitch okay yeah um what what you do in a query letter is you send a letter you know dear mr wonderful agent mine actually my query for the first ella book opened with need a break from 2017 come back to 1899 with me and discover murder mystery and a touch of romance i'd read on from that um but you you need and and don't don't ask me how long it took to come up with that line you come How up long did it take for you to come up with that line? <laughs> Why did I know? Uh, it actually took me a week. It took me a week for one sentence. Right. Um, and, and I write headlines every day, so that's not, you know, it's, well, it's not like we, I can't do before that. Before we get to the editor question, I do want to ask, do you each set goals for yourself that it took you a week to write that one sentence? Obviously, when you're writing a book, you can't write one sentence a week. So do you all give yourself word count goals daily? Sure and you can't leave your desk until? Yeah, I mean, I look at writing as like a mountain. You know, when you, when you get to that 10,000 words, then you can get to 15,000. Then 15 leads to 20 and so on. And when you're writing nonfiction, these query letters, you have to, you know, kind of do the same thing every time you're focused on a new, a new book. And we call them treatments. So with Helltown, I wrote a 70-page treatment for what the book would be and I sold it in Hollywood before I sold it to my publisher. So I'm, I'm partnered with Robert Downey Jr. and his company to adapt uh, for hopefully HBO. I've been you know, fortunate that I've had two of my books adapted into feature films, Patriot's Day with Mark Wahlberg and The Finest Hours, which was a Coast Guard maritime um, historical rescue book uh, starring Chris Pine. And my elevator pitch to the, on that book was... This story is Saving Private Ryan meets the perfect storm. And the publisher, was Scribner, was able to wrap their head around it pretty quickly. Understood. Um, when you write, so you're saying the query letter goes to an agent. So let's bring it back to how do you get paired with an editor? And, and, and how do you each see that relationship at this point? Do you, go ahead, Kate. Well, uh, my editor, Alex, is right here. Thanks for supporting. Um, I think, and Alex, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think basically uh, once the publishing house ag agrees that they, they like the book, um, you know, there's probably something that your editor saw in it that makes them want to gravitate toward the project because they uh, have to sign off on it. You know, they're not. And so, and I think it's, it's, it's great um, at this stage where it's a little, by the time I'm working with an editor, it's... We, the project is sold, so you're not really 
trying to convince someone that the story has merit. You're more trying to figure out what's the best way to tell it. And Alex is always great in that she tells me, you know, where sometimes things are clear in my head and it's not coming across on the page. Sometimes I think I'm being very witty or my character is, you know, totally relatable and funny and it's not only to me. <laughs> and so, and so uh, I think... And again, Alex, correct me, but I think uh, your editor not only understands the story that you're trying to tell, but understands the audience pretty well. And so is constantly reminding you that, you know, you're telling this story that you have inside your head and want to get out, but you're telling it to people that need to, you know, hang with you for the whole time. And that you always have to be very conscious of, uh, in, a, in a similar way to, I think, screenwriting, like, they can put the book down. They can turn away after the commercial, right? So you have to keep them engaged. And even if you know the exciting thing is around the corner, you have to have a way to thread it through um, where they can trust you and they know that the exciting thing is there because you know, you've done that work. So that's what I think uh, is a really good relationship with an editor is, is they are <coughs> helping you tell that story, but also very mindful of the audience you're telling it to. I also want to not uh, be selfish and ask all the questions myself. So before we run out of time, I want to give you and the audience a chance to ask your questions. There are, there's a microphone, two microphones. So raise your hand and just speak clearly and directly into the mic if you have a question. Anybody? All right, then they're all mine. I want to ask you, speaking of editors, is there a habit that you have? It could be a punctuation mark that you overuse, um, that you have been sort of wrapped on the knuckles with, with the editor's ruler about. Is any, any for you? I'm a broadcaster. So I hear my copy. I don't see it. So copy editors see me coming and cry. Um, I, never, I, will, I will tell you right now in public in front of everyone, I will never challenge a copy editor on punctuation marks because I have no idea what it's supposed to look like. I know what, it's what it sounds like in my head, and so I've, I've learned. I've gotten better over the years, but I never challenge copy editors because I don't punctuate the same way that people who write it do. I punctuate for the ear. As if you're speaking. Yeah. I want to talk about your titles. I think you have four really fantastic titles to your book. I want to know, and we can just go down the line, was this your original title, Casey, or has it ch did it change from inception to publishing yeah the original title was uh cemetery road uh because the killer was luring his victims into an ancient cemetery on cape cod before killing them but as i was doing my research on provincetown where the killer resided i learned that provincetown had a nickname in the 1700s and it was called Helltown because it was a pirate enclave and uh you know it was called Helltown because of all the helling that was going on there so it just you know a light flash, and I said, okay, that's a much better title, and uh, here we go. Here we go. What about A Fatal Overture? Was that? That was mine. Um, the original, A Fatal Finale was not mine. We had to come up with, come up with something for that, and we stuck with the A uh, Fatal for the series. A Fatal Overture is mine because it, the, the MacGuffin in the story relates to somebody making an overture. Uh, somebody that they shouldn't have made an overture to. So that's I love the double entendre, though, in the world of opera and, you know, the, right, the exactly. orchestra I, I try as to well pick, as... Yeah, I try to pick musical um, 
terms for the titles for the yellow books and uh, an overture was perfect because somebody instead of getting slapped gets a knife in the eye <laughs> i also want to say as a parent of a teen that your book was incredibly satisfying for me as an adult um, but also it really is a book that could be read by a younger audience as well there are a few things that are slightly edgy i, I think but it's pretty safe I am the parent of a 12-year-old who is here right now, and any 12-year-old but mine can read these books. So, <laughs> fair enough. Um, well, I think I don't think *The Darkness of Others* was my first title, but then I think I was given a few more cracks at it and came up with *The Darkness of Others*. And uh, it's a quote from Carl Jung. It says, uh, "Knowing your own darkness is the best method for dealing with the darkness of other people." So, um, and she's obviously a psychiatrist, my protagonist. So that. That worked. Yeah. Um, I, I probably had lots of titles and they probably went on a big long list and I probably compiled and edited the list when I should have been writing my thousand words a day. <laughs> um, but needless to say, Birthday Girl is probably the least embarrassing one that I could think of. Um, and it does actually, the book does begin and end on the same person's birthday. So... I comfort myself with that knowledge, but. Are there, you know, I, I, I can only sort of reference my habits and even before I come here, this is, I've done many of these events, I have to stop, I'm not sponsored, but I have to stop at Pret-a-Manger <laughs> and get an iced coffee. Like I can't do this, I'm just superstitious at this point, this many events in, that it will only go well with this cup. So in your writing life, do you have talisman or things that you need in order to write in earnest on any given day. Obviously you have deadlines and so you might not always be able to have your yellow, you know, water can on your desk. But are there things that you bring with you, Casey? Yeah, I mean I think it's all about creating your environment. You know, and I, I have a office at home that I write the majority of my work in, but occasionally I'll want to get out of the house and I'll just go to a coffee shop and if I have a great day of writing there I'm going back to that coffee shop until I have a lousy day of writing, and then they'll never see me again. Um, but, you, uh, you know, it's much like being a, a pitcher, uh, you know, in a major league baseball team. You have your habits, and if they go well, if you're on a streak, you, you go with it, and if, you know, that streak ends, then you've got to find something else to inspire you. I write wherever I have five minutes and a flat surface for a laptop. Um, after, after being the virtual school assistant during the pandemic and being a, being a stay-at-home mom during the week and an anchor on the weekends. If I got time to write, I write. Where I'm terribly superstitious, and my family's going to start laughing now, is in terms of good luck charms for when I'm pitching something. I have a t-shirt that I wear when I get up in the morning when I have a pitch that I wear when I exercise one particular t-shirt and I wear it a particular way. And there, there's stuff like that. I'm, I'm Scotch-Irish and we're superstitious bog dwellers. <laughs> I can say that because I am one. So, you know, that's, that's kind of how we are. Um, I just agree with everything Kathleen said in the beginning. Like, whenever I had a flat surface or my lap and a few minutes, I can write. Um, and I think, I think that's something, we, you know, a lot of us have been journalists, so we also just know that you have, if you have a deadline, you just, you can't find the perfect place, right? right. You can't find this. You just got you just gotta do it. And, um, as far as superstitions, I, I, it's funny because I think I am superstitious, but I guess I just don't really have any about writing, probably because nothing uh, 
nothing seems to work continu continuously. You just need a Pret-a-Manger iced coffee. Oh, there That's you go. it. Well, I yeah. might have to try That's it. it. Yeah. 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 What about you, Nico? Um, I don't really have any superstitions. I should probably get some. Um, I think just having be feeling undisturbed, which isn't easy, um, and then trying to think up excuses to um, to not write, like I need to clean out under the sink or I have to call someone, things like that. That's much of my day consists of that. Um, and then also sometimes texting people and saying, please don't text me, I'm trying to work for the next two hours, things like that. I guess to sum up, first of all, I just want to, before I ask my last question, to thank all of you for joining us in Bryant Park today. Uh, it was such a pleasure to get to do this, and it doesn't happen without you. So thank you for being here and supporting these extraordinary authors. As you can see, they are here and willing to sign books. You can buy the books in the back right there, and then each of the authors will just stay put, and you guys can line up and, and meet them that way. Um, maybe just to close out, uh, a huge thank you to all of you. Thank, thank you for you. your books. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Um, Total pleasure. This is a, a genre that's sort of new to me, and the idea that I got to get, lo I, w I was able to really get lost in all of your stories. And as I said to one of your agents, never be ahead of the story. It's an extraordinary thing. And that was even true with, you know, with something that you could read about in a newspaper. Um, and I love the, the Kurt Vonnegut and Norman Mailer appearances. I thought that was really, um, a really fascinating way to help tell the story. Maybe, maybe uh, whoever wants to go, I really will stick with this. Just what would you like people to take away from your book? Well, um, Helltown again. It's a it's a cautionary tale, and it's about the you know not only a serial murder case, but how you know we lose ourselves. You know, true crime is a genre that has just been exploding. I think often thanks to the pandemic where we were all stuck inside and everybody likes to play armchair sleuth. But these are real murders. And, you know, these families have lost something forever. And I would say that when you read Helltown, remember the women um, that lost their lives. Um, mine's obviously a much lighter work than that. Uh, you need to know two things. One, historical mystery is not all about dead white people in big houses. This is a much more diverse and much more open-minded cast than you would, might be used to in a historical mystery. And the, uh, the one thing I think that people should take away from it, even though it's a mystery, is the best line which I gave to um, Preston Dare, the older guy in the, in the book, which is, unless you're too stupid to let it, love always wins. <laughs> I love that. Um, well, I think uh, I'd like people to to take away um, that you know that they had an enjoyable time uh, reading the mystery and, and figuring out what happens, and also that uh, you know they see characters who are relatable that went through something that we all went through and um, are still going through to some degree, and uh, can see can see the 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 stressors and all of this reflected back, but in a way that gives you some distance and is also entertaining, but, um, you know, feels real as a result. Birthday girl. Um, I guess to pick up at the quote at the beginning of my book from Henry James, which is, never say you know the last word about any human heart because, um, you know, some of you are here with people, some of you are not. You probably have people you know at home 
but actually in most of those cases those people will have secrets from you um and i guess leading on from that the um the you know the book is about murder it's about some quite dark things but i also hope people take away that sometimes um sometimes these things are funny and entertaining um and quite yeah quite comic well, I just want to say that these are four authors who understand the phrase page turner. There was not a chapter that ended that I didn't very much look at the clock and go, oh my God, all right, I have to get up in the morning, so I'm going to put it down. But these are books that are really hard to put down. And with all that's going on in the world, to get that deeply lost in a story is no small feat. So thank you to all of you for being here today. Thank well, you thank for you your for books. Thank, thank you, you, Brian thank Park. You. Have thank a you. wonderful day. Enjoy this Thanks, great everybody. city of ours. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. One more thing, I keep getting emails asking how to donate to the podcast. First of all, thank you in advance. You are the kindest humans. Just go to littleknownfactspodcast.com slash donations. That is where you donate. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. This episode of Little Known Facts was edited by Nicholas Klar. We record in New York City. The Little Known Facts theme song was written and recorded and sung by Georgia Famusa with backup vocals by Caleb Famusa. Thank you. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks... Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.